Our Enemies in Blue, Police and Power in America, by Christian Williams. Introduction, by Joy James. So, it is said that if you know others and know yourself, you will not be imperiled in a hundred battles. If you do not know others but know yourself, you win one and lose one. If you do not know others and do not know yourself, you will be imperiled in every single battle. Sun Tzu, The Art of War. Our enemies in blue holds up the mirror within which we may see our deepest fault lines, our cracks and fissures. We've the landscaped visage of a war zone. State violence can disfigure the countenance of a democracy, destabilize its bearing, its moral standing, and mental composure. The most visceral and physical manifestation of state violence is police or military violence. With the current foreign wars and occupations, as with most American wars and occupations largely fueled by racially driven terrors, technologies of repression and force migrate back home. Ironically, tragically, or just stupidly, we rarely recognize and acknowledge that armed police are both the antecedents and harbingers of war in the American homeland. Most wars are fought for territory and property, waged to protect or expand the accumulation of material wealth. It's startling and sobering how those relatively little material how those with relatively little material wealth in comparison to the conglomerates dominating consumer culture through our social, political, and economic lives, still manage a loyalty or obedience, either willingly or unwillingly, to a state run by elites and regulated by police. Vast resources are necessary for a healthy life, decent housing and health care, clean food, water, and air, a vibrant educational culture, and freedom from freelance entrepreneurial or officially sanctioned predators. Those who unjustly control those resources unjustly command our obedience through intimidation and force. Or perhaps we do not yet fully know ourselves or how our civic mindedness reflects the greed and insecurity of those who dominate us. Perhaps given that our fractional material possessions and insecurity overshadow the material resources of the impoverished global majority, we at times grudgingly tolerate that, quote, enemy in blue. Who can tell how much of ourselves we will see in the enemy? It is helpful to remember that it is not mere numbness to the white supremacist and classist aspects of American policing that renders many of us indifferent to and passive before police violence, but the recognition that acquiescence is the price for our unsustainable consumption. This empire permits us to share in the wealth of American excess as long as we permit its policing apparatuses to exist. If we as independent thinkers, peace lovers, or maroons confuse ourselves with the empire, its consumption and obesities, the obscene levels of violence it employs with the excessive use of force or excessive force, then we know neither ourselves nor the quote other, this state which increasingly distorts our very appearance as a democratic society with quote post 9-11 decrees such as the USA Patriot Act. To know neither what we have become as critical thinkers and ethical beings, nor what others have fashioned themselves to be through coercive technology and violence, is to be blind, to be peril with both eyes, to be in peril with both eyes shut. To leave one eye open suggests some possibility of survival, although likely without real freedom, as we reactively respond to the encroachments of the state. Lose one battle to curb police malfeasance, win another for civil liberties, then begin again. If we recognize structural violence as Christian Williams outlines it with considerable detail in Our Enemies in Blue, then we might see with both eyes that analysis and reflection, judgment and action require us to witness not only police state violence, 
but our relationships to tragic, traumatic, and stupid practices that shape our everyday and extraordinary lives. Tragic, traumatized, and stupid at times, we nevertheless have the presence of mind to openly scrutinize violence in order to better know ourselves in relation to, quote, others. Police, vigilantes, mercenaries, and private guards, or patrols slash prisons, assuming state duties, violent criminals, and domestic violators, and recognize the manipulation of public phobias against racially fashioned suspects and the impoverished for what they are. State violence is racist, and it is imperialist in its ambition. Yet, when we shed our indifference to and fear of confronting state violence and everyday social violence, we increase our ability to recognize a shared humanity. This humanity can work to organize itself in daily resistance to the construction of the outsider, the bete noire, that requires the blue beast or camouflage troops or tailored homeland security agent as its counterbalance and counterpart. Su Tzu's ancient text in opposition to war advocates for self-knowledge that safeguards us in dangerous battles. Those who work to create and sustain programs to end violent practices and addictions should read Our Enemies in Blue as part of a long tradition in resistance. Author's Preface, 2007 it is always a bit unnerving to revisit my own earlier work. I find myself pacing through the text, almost holding my breath, dreading embarrassment, but still scrutinizing every detail, examining every word, hunting out the small errors and subtle missteps. It is not possible for me merely to reread my work. I constantly rewrite it as well, if only in my mind. The text is haunted, or I am haunted, by the side-shadowing questions of what I might have done differently. Surely were I writing it today, Our Enemies in Blue would be a somewhat different book. It's not that there's anything in the book that I specifically regret or am tempted to recant, and it is not, unfortunately, because broad social changes have created a new context and thus demand a radical reassessment. It's just that Enemies was my first book, and I hope that I've become a better writer in the three years since it was completed. So I've resisted the temptation to substantially rewrite the text. Those who've read the original 2004 edition will recognize this as very much the same book. I've corrected some typos and similar mistakes and made a few stylistic changes, but the arguments and the evidence are the same as in the original. This is not an updated edition. Not that there isn't more that I could have added. I could have, for instance, included new sections on the police infiltration of the anti-war movement, on the recent use of agents provocateurs against anarchists, on the Miami model of crowd control, or on the shifting politics of immigration enforcement. Likewise, I could have brought in new material on the aftermath of the Greensboro Massacre, and on the Schwerner-Goodman-Cheney murders, and I could have updated the statistics on the use of force, workplace deaths, racial profiling, the prison population, and so on. But all of that, important though it is, really remains at the level of detail. In a couple of cases, I have added notes explaining that unforeseen developments complicate some point in the text. But overall, Recent events fit neatly within the narrative I was building and do not demand any serious reworking of the original argument. It's disappointing, really, that so little has changed. Forward, Police and Power in America. What are police for? Everybody thinks they know, but to assume that the police exist to enforce the law or fight crime is akin to beginning an analysis of military policy with the premise that armies exist to repel invasions. The ends an institution pursues are not always the same as those it claims to pursue. I begin, then, with a call for skepticism, especially about official slogans and publicly traded justifications. 
Let us focus less on what the police say they're doing and instead assess the institution based on what it actually does. We should ask always who benefits and who suffers, whose interests are advanced and who pays the cost. Who's protected and served, who's bullied and brutalized? The answers will tell us something of the forces directing the police, both in specific circumstances and in the larger historical sense. They will also reveal the interests the institution serves and the ends it promotes. This book discusses much of what is worst about the police. It describes their actions largely in terms of intolerance, corruption, political repression, and violence. The first chapter, Police Brutality in Theory and Practice, offers an overview of police violence, its prevalence, causes, and consequences. It's followed by a history of the modern police institution, beginning with The Origins of American Policing in Chapter 2. That section traces the lineage of our modern police back to the slave patrols and other earlier forms, while Chapter 3, The Genesis of a Policed Society, weighs the significance of the new institution and the changing role of the state. Chapters 4 and 5, Cops and Clan Hand in Hand and The Natural Enemy of the Working Class, continue this examination with a look at the use of police to stifle the social ambitions of racial minorities, especially African Americans, and workers. The sixth chapter, Police Autonomy and Blue Power, discusses efforts to reform policing, especially during the 20th century, and analyzes the relationship between reform movements and the emergence of police as a political force. Then, Secret Police, Red Squads, and the Strategy of Permanent Repression, and Riot Police or Police Riots, Chapters 7 and 8 detail intelligence operations and crowd control strategies. Chapter 9, Your Friendly Neighborhood Police State, brings the discussion up to the present, focusing on current trends such as militarization and community policing. And the afterward, Making Police Obsolete, considers community-based alternatives to policing, especially those connected to resistance movements here and abroad. Throughout, the focus is on police in their modern form, particularly in urban departments in the United States. Some discussion of earlier models will be featured as background, and conditions in other countries are sometimes described by way of comparison. Likewise, the mention of other law enforcement authorities, federal agencies, county sheriffs, private guards, and the like, will be unavoidable to the degree that they influence, resemble, or take on the duties of the municipal police. As the narrative progresses, several related trends become discernible. The first is the expansion of police autonomy, and the subsequent growth of their political influence. The second is the continual effort to make policing more proactive, with the aim of preventing offenses. Related to each of these is the increased penetration of police authority into the community and into the lives of individuals. These trends are related to larger social conditions, slavery and segregation, the rise and fall of political machines, the creation of municipal bureaucracies, the development of capitalism, and so on. It is argued, in short, that the police exist to control troublesome populations, especially those that are likely to rebel. This task has little to do with crime, as most people think of it, and much to do with politics, especially the preservation of existing inequalities. To the degree that the social order works to the advantage of some and the disadvantage of others, its preservation will largely consist of protecting the interests of the first group from the demands of the second, and that, as we shall see, is what the police do. Robert Reiner claims that, quote, to a large extent, a society gets the policemen it deserves, unquote. It's hard to know whether Mr. Reiner is extremely optimistic about the police or extremely cynical about society, but undeniably the history of our society is reflected in the history of its police. Much of that history clashes with our nation's patriotic self-image, 
The history of America's police is not the story of democracy so much as it is the story of the prevention of democracy. Yet there's another story, an ever-present subtext, the story of resistance. It too drives this narrative, and if there's a reason for hope anywhere in this book, we may find it here, amidst the slave revolts, strikes, sit-ins, protest marches, and riots.